Legalism makes us narrow and divisive. Everyone has to be like us. It really, we really miss out on the delight of diversity in the body of Christ. Legalism makes it impossible for people to see Jesus. You ever been out with someone and tried to witness to them and one of the things, the complaints they have about Christianity or about the church is all the do's and don'ts? We inadvertently portray Jesus as some drill sergeant instead of a savior. Legalism can take a vibrant faith and make it dull and lifeless. It can evaporate enthusiasm, remove joy, and it can stifle spirituality. Instead of finding freedom through Christ, which we talked about and sung about, many believers become burdened by a bunch of rules made by the church. How many of you have grown up in a very strict house? A lot of rules, a lot of things that you have to follow. Raise your hand. See if my kids raise their hand. You know, in and of itself, nothing is wrong with that. Having those guidelines, having those rules. But what happens is so often we take that strictness or that guidelines and we put it into our walk with God. And we say, I have to fulfill this or do this. I have to abide by all these things to be pleasing to God, to be okay with God. And we take those guidelines and we put them in there and we say, this is how it's got to be. If we're honest, most of us call, fall into legalism without trying to do so. Let me illustrate this. And I think, for lack of a better term, or the best way to do this is to give you an example of how easy it is to fall into legalism. Let's say this past Wednesday, Reg, you have to support me because Melanie's not here, but I'm going to use you too as an example. This past Wednesday, Reg and Melanie were leading prayer meeting, and, and Melanie was, I was, going to, I was asking and going to pray for uh, those believers around the world who are suffering for Christ. And in the midst, she just felt to, that her, a need to, to bow down and pray for those. And it was just something that she felt God. And she said, you know what? I'm going to bow on my knees. I'm going to pray for these suffering believers around the world. You can join me if you want, but I'm going to do that. And you, you went ahead and decided to do that. You, I'm going to pray as well. I'm going to bow. I'm humbly before the, I want to lift these individuals up. But in the midst of that prayer, this is what you did. You opened your eyes to look to see who else was doing the same thing. And right there, that weed of legalism started to pop up. You started to evaluate people on who was bowing their knees and who wasn't. You got a lot out of it, and that's all right. But what you did, you started going home and saying, hey, every time I do my family devotions, I do all this stuff, I'm bowing my knees and I'm going to pray that way. You came here this morning and during our prayer time, that's the first thing you did. Bow your knees and you started praying. But then you got a little smug and you start, why isn't anyone else doing it just like me? You see how easy it is to fall into this trap of legalism? How subtle it can be? The weeds of legalism are just under the surface of each one of our lives. You see, kneeling to pray is a good thing, but it can easily become the standard by which we judge other people's spirituality. And that's just one example to show you how easy it is to fall into this. You know, here in 1 Samuel chapter 14, we will see as Saul makes what I call a foolish oath, we'll see that how this oath affects others how it affects Saul, how it affects everyone around them is similar to how legalism affects us today. So let's look how weeds of legalism can choke out our spiritual 
maturity. Starting in verse 24, I've already read this, so I won't read it again. Excuse me. I won't read it again. But you see here that how did the weed start? Well, Saul, right here, he made a rule that made him feel better. He said, hey, it is my agenda. This is what I want. And what is, he, what is the reason for doing it? He says, I want to take vengeance on my enemies. I want to take vengeance. It's what I want to do. So often when we make rules, we often make rules because we don't like the way someone else is doing something. Or we try to make a rule to fit an agenda that we have. Let's read on. Not only how do the weeds of legalism start, but how does it, how do others respond? How does it affect others? I've read this passage, but you see what the, what you find out is they were fearing the oath. They feared the rule, so they tried to live by it. They saw the honey that they wanted to eat, and no one ate it because they were afraid. Not because they agreed with it. Not because they thought it was a great idea, but they were fearful of the results if they disobeyed. And not only that, how did it affect others? They started judging someone else based on that. They got all over Jonathan for doing it, and Jonathan knew nothing about it. He wasn't even there when the oath was made. So our legalism affects others as well as it affects ourselves. People try to live by rules of man and end up getting discouraged or becoming ineffective. So what are the results of legalism, these weeds that grow up in us? Well, verse 29 through verse 30, I've read it, but it said several times within this passage that the people were faint, they were hungry, they were weak. I don't know how many of you have ever been in that situation. I probably would have been very weak and faint because my wife was gone this week, and I don't do any cooking. I do the eating. But I'm thankful that my wife has taught my daughters to know how to cook, and so I'm not faint this morning. But they were. They were battling. They were fighting. And what does Jonathan say? If they were able to and allowed to eat of the spoil, of what the, the battle had brought about, the battle, the, the victory would have been a lot bigger. And so the first results of that is the victory was lessened. The victory was lessened. would have been a bigger, greater victory. There would be greater victory in our lives as well. What is the second result? What happened when they were able to eat? What did they do? They won the battle. They were still tired. They were still worn out. Maybe you've been in this situation and this sounds legalistic, so, so bear with me. But maybe what happens is you've gotten so hungry that when the food comes, you just start shoving it in. I will do that with my son sometimes. He's so hungry, I'm just like, slower, eat smaller bites. I know I'm the same way. I've grown up one of nine kids. When there's nine kids plus my parents, 11 people at the table, you don't say prayers long. Yep. Uh, the food's going to be gone. But you see those here, and what happens is they are so hungry and so weakened that the way that they kill the spoil, and they do it, and they violate God's commands. They, they eat it with the blood. And so the effects of not only is it that they, the, the victory is lessened, but the effects also is the fact that they're violating God's law, the effects of it. Let's read on. It's not only effects of violating God's law, but as we continue, it's the holy things were treated 
casually. Look at verse 34 and 35, and now at first glance you might think, hey, this is not a bad thing that Saul does here. He builds an altar. That's a good thing. But what's his motivation behind doing that? To get everybody back in line so they can go right back into the battle. He takes the holy things and make them, just treats them casually. It's not that big of a deal for him. He just wants to get in line. He wants to continue to go back after his enemies and fight. And so he took this, the, the, the sacrifice and so forth and getting things right very lightly. It was not that important to him. He was just going through the motions. Sound familiar? Just going through the motions. What's really happening doesn't make much sense. It doesn't bother me that much. It's just doing it. I'm just coming to church or I'm just doing my devotions. I have sin in my life, but I just first John one night, I confessed with my heart. I heard Dakota speaking to our young people this morning. And he was talking about, you know what? It, it's a heart change. It's a desire to agree that what you've done is wrong and sin. And you need to change. It's not just saying the words. It's being in agreement with what God says. And then last but definitely not least, the punishment didn't fit the crime. What did Saul say? You're going to die. Because you didn't know about it, but you still took it. You're going to die. The punishment, so often in legalism, when we're legalistic, it doesn't fit the crime. Now, so we have a chance to make this more personal than just back in 1 Samuel 14. Let's see how each four of these, and I'm going to ask the guy to, up there to leave all four of these, how all four of these still relate to our legalistic standards that we have today. Let's say, for instance, Pastor Luke, as you so abruptly made comment about my shirt, what about someone who has the way someone looks? Maybe their hair's too long. Luke wouldn't have that challenge. But maybe it's their hair's too long. Maybe they have tattoos. Maybe they have an ugly shirt on like I do. Whatever that is. You know, maybe they're wearing shorts and you think someone coming to church should wear pants. You know, I've had a blessing, an opportunity to, to reach out to a couple homeless people in our, in our community and inviting them to church and trying to witness to them and everything else. I don't think that's happened here, but what happens if they came and all they had was a pair of shorts and a shirt? Would we open our arms and show love to them? You see, if you don't, the victory's already lessened. They've already put up a wall to what God wants to do in their life because of the way they look. How do we violate the command of God? Did you see that guy over there? Did you see Pastor Steve's shirt when you leave today? You're gossiping about me. Did you see that guy with long hair? Did you see those tattoos? See, you're already violating the command of God because you're gossiping. Holy things becoming tr- treated casually. Yes. See, it's not about the outward appearance. It's about the heart. It's about the things inside. And see, so those holy things, the things that are really important, become very casual. Punishment doesn't fit the crime. They stop coming. We lose the opportunity to minister to them, to reach them for Christ or to help them grow. You see, it's God that's got to be doing the changing. And you know what? God changes someone else differently than he may change you. We're not to be cookie cutters of each other. We're not all supposed to come in here. If, we don't, if we've got hair, we shave them to look like Mr. Lopez. 
It's not about that. It's not about the appearance. Let me use one more and we'll move on. How about our worship? How do these four things relate to our worship? Some of us want to raise our hands. Some of us want to clap. Some of us want to say amen. How do we, how do we, how's the victory lesson? Oh, somebody else doesn't, they don't feel comfortable around me this week. I clapped and someone did this one time to me and I clapped too loud. So some people have moved away from me. It wasn't because of my clapping because it was the volume, but you know, it won't sit next to them. They feel uncomfortable because somebody raised their hand in praising God. Somebody said, amen. Oh, who's listening? Who's see the victory is lesson. It's about the heart. The heart of worship. It's not based on what others are doing and what others think. We violate the command of God. Yes. The heart of worship is from the inside. It's not trying to be satisfied to the status quo of Grace Baptist Church in the way they praise and worship God. It's what God's word says. Holy things are treated casually. Yes. Worship, true worship is Set aside worrying more about what the person next to you or in front of you thinks. The punishment doesn't fit the crime. Yeah, people who are raising their hands or maybe they clap during a song, maybe even offbeat like myself, you know, they worry about what other people, hey, maybe they won't come back. I want to go to another place. These are all things, and you can go on and on about different legalistic Issues, like how often you should attend church, the certain um, version, scripture, or version of the Bible you should use, having quiet times, defining success of a church by how many people are sitting in the pews. Those are all man-made determinations, not God-made. How do we pull these weeds, then, of legalism? How do we get them out of our life? Life? Let me ask you, before we move to our next passage, we're going to stay here. Why do you think the, God allowed the lot to, be, to fall on Jonathan? You can respond if you want. I'm not trying to set you up. Some of you may think it's because Jonathan's sin. Some of you may think God was just honoring Saul because of his position and his, where he, what he, his stance that he had made, the oath that he made. Or maybe it was because God was going to use this to speak to Saul about how idiotic decision he had made. And maybe someone would stand up and say, where did we come up with this? Why did we, why did we, we make this rule? And I believe because if you look at the whole context of the passage, I believe it was the latter one. I don't think it was Jonathan's sin because I don't think Jonathan sinned in this. I think Saul did. And I believe you can look at the whole context. You can look at, at, at Saul's responses. You can look at how God did not respond to Saul when he cried out to him until this sin was being dealt with. He didn't answer him when Saul cried out. I see God's hand working in Jonathan's life with uh, bringing the victory. And so you, you can have that attitude. But you see that these weeds of legalism need to be pulled out. If you would turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. I'll give you a minute to get there, but as you're there, what are the end results of the way you're living? How you are doing your faith? 
Is it based upon a bunch of man-made rules? Or is it based upon God's word and what it says? Now, I understand this whole aspect of convictions. But my convictions and how God directs me and speaks to me in my private time with him is different than how God is going to convict you and the convictions you have. None of them are going to contradict God's word, but they're going to be individual and personal. And too often we use those for the guidelines to judge everyone in life. We need to pay attention to the state of our spiritual life. What are the results we're getting from our walk? Galatians 5, 22 and 23 tells us that we should have the fruit of the Spirit. Those are the things that we should be experiencing in our life. If we're not, maybe we're living by man's rules. We need to be constantly reminded over and over, and as Larry led us in this, these songs today, it's about his grace. We're saved by grace, and we grow by grace. Paul argues here in Colossians chapter 2, if you're there, about two important things, two important truths that we need to keep in mind so we can pull these weeds of legalism out. First, we need to remember our legal standing. We're going to get rid of legalism in our life. We need to remember our legal standing. The best defense against performance-based faith is to remember where we stand before God. Look at verse 9 and 10 in chapter chapter 3 here. I'm in the... It would be good if I was in the right chapter, and right book. Okay, chapter 2, verse 9 and 10 I'm going to start in verse 8. It says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of this world, and not according to Christ. Verse 9. For in him dwells all the fullness of Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. First of all, we need to remember that we are complete in Christ. When we put our faith in Christ, we are included in what he has done. All the fullness of deity lives in him. Jesus is not just a way to God. He is the only way because he is God himself. Hear me, not only does all the fullness of God dwell in Christ, but all believers are filled with the fullness of Christ as well. If you put your faith in Christ for forgiveness of sins, then there is nothing lacking in your relationship with God based on your standing. You don't need to add something. Do something. Friend, you don't need to do any you don't need anything more than what you already have. What you merely need to do is understand and appropriate what you already have been given. You've got to grasp that. You've got to understand that you are complete in Christ if you know him as Lord and Savior. You don't need to add anything else to that. Amen? Amen. If you think you do, you're going to be a legalist. Hey, I'm going to please God more by doing this. If I add this, my salvation or whatever. Not only are we complete, let's read on verse 11. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. 
and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. In other words, by yourself, in your own hands, you're dead spiritually. But what does Christ do? He has made us alive together with him. You're not only complete, but you're made alive in your legal standing with God when you accept him as Lord and Savior. Now, there's so much I can say, but time is going quickly. He uses circumcision here. And see what so happens in in Galatian, Paul's dealing with this aspect because those in Galatia were, were saying that, hey, you have to circumcise and obey the law to be saved. And now here in Colossia, the, the, the problem was not the salvation, but they thought you were more spiritual if you were circumcised. And in Jeremiah, I believe it is, Jeremiah 4, 4, it says, believers need to have their hearts circumcised. It was not about the outward's appearance. It's about the heart, the change that has to happen on the inside. Paul goes on to say right here in this passage that, It's not just circumcision, it's also baptism. Just like you're not saved by circumcision, the outward um, experience there, you're not saved by baptism. It doesn't save you. It identifies you with Christ, just like this ring on my hand identifies me as a married man. It identifies us. It does not save us. Not only... Are we alive? Not only are we complete, but look what it goes on to say. This is getting good. I hope it is for you. He made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and has taken it, to, taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Our sins are canceled. Your sins are canceled. Jesus has forgiven you of all your sins. Anybody excited about that? Okay, I hope you are. I hope you don't take this for granted. He has forgiven us of all of our sins. Our sins are canceled. This means every single one, even those that you have hard time forgiving yourself. It says here, and I love what it says here. It says it it takes those sins like a written law and nails it to the cross. It's like taking a rap sheet, and maybe there's a number underneath it, maybe there's a picture of you, and it nailed it to the cross, and it is finished there. Your sins are forgiven at the cross. Amen? Amen. I love the picture that it's painting here by taking that handwriting and putting it up there. I've seen it done at youth camps. I've done it myself where you just, you know, you, you leave it there at the cross, and you nail it there. That's exactly what's happening here. It is being nailed to the cross. But it it gets better. Look at verse 15. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made it it a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. We have victory in Christ. Amen? We have victory. We are victorious in Christ. Amen? The word disarmed here literally means stripped, as stripping a defeated enemy of the armor on the battlefield. The powers and authorities of this evil world stripped Christ of his clothing and his popularity, maybe made a public spectacle of him on the cross, and thought they had triumphed over him by putting him to death. But little did they know that the victory actually belonged to Christ. Friends, 
Evil no longer has any power over you because Christ has stripped Satan of his weapons. He has been disarmed. The only power that he has is what we give him or we allow him to deceive us and to cause us to fear. Do you know that you are victorious in Christ? Some of you do. Some of us aren't living victorious lives. Why? Because Satan's stronger? No, it's because we allow him to do those things in our lives. Christ dwells in us. He lives within us. We are victorious. But if we depend on man and man-made laws and man-made rules instead of what lives within us to give us the power and the strength, we're not going to be victorious. I love what Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 15. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only do we need to understand if we're going to pull these weeds of legalism out of our life, not only do we need to understand our legal standing, but we need to resist legalism. We need to resist it because it is luring. It is tempting because so often in our own lives, if we're honest with ourselves, we want a rule to follow because then we think we've accomplished something. We want something to, to, to be disciplined, and we, and we understand that. But so often we use that as the, the measuring tape for a successful Christian life. And we need to be able to resist these things. Look what it says. And I'm going to read Galatians real quick because I think this is important. You could write it down, look at it later. Galatians 3, verse 1 and 2 says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. Verse 2, this only I want to learn from you. In other words, I'm asking you a question. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing of faith? In other words, did you get saved by earning it? By working for salvation? What would your answer be? No. And that's what the answer is here. He says, then how foolish are you? Having been in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? In other words, my flesh is going to make me more like Christ? He says, you've got to be foolish. But I love what Paul tells us here as we read on. He says, here's some warnings so you're not as foolish as those in Galatians. Verse 16 to 17. So, Let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new Sabbath or moon, which are shadows of things to come. But the substance is of who? Christ. The substance is we've got to refuse to judge others by by the external, by what they look like, by what they're doing. And we can't allow people to judge us by that as well. You see, some of you have already judged me because of the shirt I'm wearing. You've had, you know, flashbacks from when you were in the 50s and the 60s, and you're just going, whoa, what is going on? I'm dizzy. And as, as comical as that may or may not be, we do that so often. It's easy to fall into that trap of judging based on appearance, based on what somebody looks like. And now you know why I wore this shirt, because it was relating to the message. 
it's relatively easy for us to judge by externals. If there's something you're not supposed to eat or you're supposed to avoid it, then everything is kosher. None of you caught that. Um, If you attend when you're supposed to attend, then you must be doing something okay. If you kneel when you pray, then you must be close to God. We must be alert to make sure that we're not evaluating what we're doing or what others are doing according to external standards, but according to God's word. Look what it says as we read on verse 18 and 19. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by, the, by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit by ligament, grows with the increase that is from God. We need to reject that false teaching out there. He hits four specific areas. He said those have false humility. Those who act like they're humble and holy, but in reality they're filled with spiritual pride and superiority. Let me tell you something right now. No one in this room is any better than anyone else in this room. Pastor Luke and I can clean the toilets just like anyone else. Just because we're pastor doesn't make it any difference. Do you understand that? We need to be servants to one another as we serve him. Humble ourselves. He says, watch out. Who those feel like, oh, I can't do that. Some of us use the thing, that's above my pay raise. That's an excuse. Anyways, he says they have false humility. They say, he says they worship angels. In other words, their focus is on something other than Christ, other spiritual beings, this saint or that saint. We'll leave it at that. They have visions. They love to give people the latest word from the Lord, but they're totally clueless, he says. He says they're, they're saying things they've never seen. God's revelation, God's word is already complete, and they're trying to add to it. He says they're puffed up with idle notions. They have big heads, but not burning hearts. And then he goes on to say that all of these people are disconnected from the head. But John 15 tells us to what? To be connected, to get our strength from him. Be in the vine. Be connected to him. And he says here, these individuals, these ones that are in authority, that are living this way, that are making these man-made rules, these Pharisees and Sadducees and others even in our society today, he says they're not even connected to the head. It's all about them. He says, reject those false authorities. We must make sure that we are not seeking experiences that do not correlate with Christ or his word. Verse 20 to 23, we're almost done. Verse 20 says this, Therefore, if you dine with Christ from the basic principles of this world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourselves to the regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using. According to the commandments and doctrines of men, these things are indeed have appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. False teachers focus on personal denial as the way to curb their appetites. This may sound really good on the surface, 
because we all agree that there should be discipline if it's in athletics or whatever. You've got to be disciplined. But Paul tells us that we don't belong to the world anymore. We don't get to heaven by following a list of do's and don'ts, and we don't live the Christian life that way either. I agree what, with what Charles Spurgeon said. He puts it this way. I have found in my own spiritual life the more rules I lay down for myself, the more sins I commit. It's got to be based on God's word. Rules don't abolish the appetite because they feed or focus on the flesh. Because no matter how hard we work, we can't force sin out of our lives through a devotion to some man-made rule. We need God's power working within us. Let me share this personally and we'll close. I remember when I first became a Christian at age 16. As in each one of our lives, we struggle with sin. Not going to be that personal to share what, what those struggles were. But I know when I first became a Christian, I loved God, still do. But I loved God and I really wanted to please God. And what did I try to do? I tried to quit those things on my own. I tried to to give up enough unction, enough strength and say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stop doing that. I tried to put guidelines in my life and, and nothing's wrong with those things. But I was doing it all in my own strength. Has anyone else ever been there, tried to do that? I'm not, I know I'm not the only one. We try to do that because it feels like, okay, I've accomplished something. But see, it's got to be God that works in us and through us. And he will put what I like to say, any of you ever gone bowling? Any of you, keep your hands, any of you have to use the gutter? The gutter, the bumpers there? Yeah, some of you should. That's why your score is only 50, okay? But here's the reality. Those are up to keep you in line. That's God's word. It's what keeps you in line, keeps you out of the gutter. So often we try to make all these other rules and guidelines. We must teach grace before commitment because once grace is understood and embraced, it will lead to commitment. Required commitment and rule keeping always leads to legalism. Listen to what Titus 2, 11 and 12 says. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. God's grace, his mercy, him living in us and through us. What are we focusing on in our lives? As we close this morning, where's your, what's your Christian life like? Is it focused on yourself? Is it focused on Christ? Are you a list keeper or you're a grace giver? Is your faith anchored in personal experience or based on the word of God? Has it set you free or it has tied you up? Rules are like the religious training wheels that keep us from tipping over. But there becomes a time when we've got to Recognize we're set free and removing those training wheels. 
reminded of a bishop who once told Louis VI of France. He said, make an iron cage for all those who do not agree and do not think the way we do. An iron cage in which the captive can neither lie down nor stand up straight. The king agreed and had it constructed. Short time later, the bishop somehow offended that king. And for 14 years, he was locked up in that same cage. Have you constructed a cage for those who don't think the same way you do? Be careful, because you may end up in that bondage yourself. Let's pray. Christianity is not a matter of what you do or what you don't do. Christianity is what's been done for you, what Jesus did on the cross, what he has done, what he said. It is finished. The price has been paid. The debt has been erased. You are complete in Christ. You are alive. Your sins are forgiven, and you have victory. This morning here, as you hear my voice, if you have not accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you do not have victory. You do not have eternal life. You can try to do things all on your own, all your life. But he is the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father but by him. May today be that day of salvation for you.